Well, would you take the word of God with me and turn to the book of Exodus in chapter 17. Exodus and uh, chapter uh, 17. We've been working our way through our study uh, of, uh, studying through the book of Exodus. And as we come to chapter 17, there are really two events that took place in Rephidim. Uh, the first part of this uh, chapter, verse 1 through verse 7, is uh, we can entitle it the chiding with Moses, the chiding of the people with Moses. We could say also the chiding with the Lord. Uh, they've been murmuring, complaining, quarreling, arguing, wishing they could go back to Egypt. And so here they go again. They're chiding. The second part of the chapter is the fighting with Amalek. And so there's two things that happen in Rephidim. And again, they're heading, headed to Mount Sinai. And we know that uh, God told Moses in the mountain where he met with him that he would bring the children back uh, of Israel back to this place uh, when they left Egypt. And so they're headed in that direction. Uh, this event here that we find... There's another event where there is no water. But this particular event is referred to throughout the book of Deuteronomy and even in the New Testament. And later in Deuteronomy 16, uh, 6 verse 16, he says, Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Mesa, which is what happens here. And so this event is going to be referred to, so there's significance to this event that is mentioned for us here in this portion. But also as we think about all the way to the New Testament, uh, when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he uh, reproved them on, uh, really on many issues that was going on within the church. But he said this in chapter 10 and verse 9, he said, Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Uh, neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for in samples. What does that mean? All those things, the reason why we have a record of them today, the reason why the believers at Corinth had a record of that and that day was that it could be an example for them and for us today. They are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And so in the New Testament, in reference back to the book of Exodus, the book of Numbers, and the book of Deuteronomy, he says when we read about those things, we have those things because they're an example to us, they're an example to us, they are for our admonition so that we would be careful not to think we stand and we have to take heed lest we fall. See, that's the great problem of, of mankind. We um, think that we got this in our own ability, in our own strength. And often where we go wrong is where we do not heed the admonition and the example that we find in the Word of God. So here we are in Exodus chapter 17. Uh, I read a devotional this week about kind of this idea of, of looking at the example of the children of Israel, and uh, this is what the devotional said. I thought it was good, so I'll communicate that to you before we begin. He said, Had Israel been transported from Egypt to Canaan, they would not have made such sad exhibitions of what the human heart is. And as a consequence, they would not have proved such admirable examples or types for us. But their 40 years wandering in the desert furnish us with a volume of warning, admonition, and instruction fruitful beyond conception. From it we learn, amongst many other things, they, their unwavering tendency of the heart to distrust God. It would rather lean upon a cobweb of human resources than upon the arm of the omnipotent. 
all-wise and infinitely gracious God. And the smallest cloud is more than sufficient to hide from its view the light of His blessed countenance. And that's what we see. Every little thing that happened, it was, it was the end of the world. Well, therefore, may it be termed an evil heart of unbelief, which will ever show itself ready to depart from the living God. And um, I think as we read through the book of Exodus, we find some insights into the human heart. No doubt some insights about God and who He is and how He reveals Himself, but also some insight about the human heart. And the, the, the truth about the human heart is, since man fell, the heart of man has not changed. It's the same today. The struggles are the same. Uh, the, the tendencies are the same. And so we, we get some, a lot of benefit here from what we read. So let's begin reading here, Exodus chapter 17. We're going to read verse 1 down to verse 7. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Exodus chapter 17, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. And the Word of God says, And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin, after their journeys, according to the commandment of the Lord, and pitched in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. As if Moses could just make it happen. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people. And take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb. Let me say those words again. I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb. And thou shalt smite the rock... And there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Mesa and Meribah, because of the chiding of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? I'd like to bring your attention to those last words. Is the Lord among us or not? That, that's the question. Is God among us or not? What a question. That God's going to show Himself to them and really answer that question. Is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray. Father, we thank You this evening for Your Word. Lord, help us to gain some things that might be helpful to us for our lives as we look at human nature. But Lord, might we also see you in all your glory and your splendor for who you are. And once again, how merciful and gracious you are to such a rebellious people. So Lord, give us understanding and help us to stand in awe and wonder at who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we look in our text here, the first word of the chapter is what? What's the first word? And. Now, if you look at this reference in chapter 17, verse 1, it says, and. Chapter, go back to chapter 16, verse 1. It says, and. Uh, go back to chapter uh, uh, 15, verse 1. Then. And so we find here, uh, even chapter 14, verse 1, and the Lord. And so what we find here is a, is a continuation. And I think there's a purpose in this continuation because 
we find the, the steps from the time you remember that they were delivered from Egyptian bondage the night of the Passover and uh, Egypt, uh, the Pharaoh sent word for them to depart out of the land and they journey out, they go by the Red Sea and remember they see the host of the Egyptians chasing them and in that moment they begin to murmur and they uh, criticize Moses and says, were there no graves in Egypt that you brought us here to die? And, and so you have again this, this murmuring, this complaining, this chiding with Moses there and, and God yet opens the Red Sea and they walk as by dry, on dry ground. And on the other side, we have the, the song of redemption, the deliverance from Egyptian bondage. And, and then after that, they, they go to the waters of Mara, and there was no water, and they find bitter waters, and they couldn't drink. And, and so they complain, and they murmur, and, and God, uh, as Moses prays to the Lord, the Lord says, well, look, there's a tree, and cast the, the tree into the water. And then the waters were made sweet, and they were able to drink of the water. And right after that, they're, they're in the wilderness of sin, and there's no food to eat and and they begin to murmur and they complain and in their murmuring and their complaint God gives them manna from heaven and we talked about the manna how it's a picture of the word of God but based upon John chapter 6 Jesus is the true manna from heaven and so we talked about that and here we come to chapter 17 and there's a another incident where they're chiding they're they're murmuring against Moses they're chiding against Moses they're chiding against the Lord And the idea that we begin the chapter is with the word and, and I think there's an emphasis here on the gravity of Israel's conduct. Here we go again, and here's another complaint, here's another conflict, here's another problem for the children of Israel. They go from, (laughs) and by the way, in the midst of all those miracles, they go from crisis to crisis. And every time, If you notice, in every single point, when God opens the door for them or provides for them, He does so without them at any point admitting they're wrong. The manna, they were murmuring. God says, you murmurers, I will send manna from heaven for you, you murmurers. And so what we learn here is not only the the emphasis on the gravity of Israel's conduct, but at the same time, there is an emphasis on the graciousness of the Lord's dealing with the children of Israel. Now, I'm putting this emphasis because we get later in the book of Exodus, the book of Numbers, where God does judge the children of Israel. Uh, at one point, he's, they're going to murmur, and he's going to send serpents among them. And, and by the way, many of them are going to die as a result. And one uh, other occasion, we're going to find how God is going to open the earth. And many of them are going to fall down and, and, and be damned in that moment. And so you, you look at all that is happening. We know the judgment of God is coming. But before we reach that point, and we think, man, God seems to be, uh, this, is, this is too much. God seems to be so severe. Well, wait a minute, how do we get there? How long does God have to be merciful and gracious before He deals with His people in judgment? All that God has done thus far is bless them. They complained, He opened the Red Sea. They complained, He changed the water to sweetness. They complained, He gave them manna from heaven. And here they complain again, and we see water coming out of the rock for them. So I don't want us to miss this. There's an emphasis on the gravity of Israel's conduct and Uh, Also on the graciousness of the Lord's dealing with His people. God is a merciful God. He is a very merciful God. We know that they're in this place here as we read the first verse of chapter 17. How how did they get there? How did they go from crisis to crisis? Do they not know where they're going? Well, notice verse 1. That after their journeys, according to the commandment of the Lord... So they went from the wilderness of sin, now they're in Rephidim. Uh, How did they get there? They got there by commandment of God. Now remember from the onset we saw that uh, God manifested Himself by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar by fire by night. And it went before them. And so they were led. And I know that uh, they they always complain and criticize Moses, but Moses was following the cloud. (laughs) He was not making up his own direction. He, he was following the direction of the Lord. And they're here in this place by commandment of the Lord. Uh, you see, um, 
these people, when they're in crisis, they are there, but they were not left without guidance. Uh, the place that they were led to was not a pla- would not be a place without testing. So what I'm saying to us is, uh, we may think sometimes, well, God has led me here, and we might think, attach God's leading to the absence of, of crisis or testing, and that's just not the case. Um, this place that, although God led them there, would not be a place without any discomforts. Uh, This place was not a place without difficulty. Uh, You see, there is no promise in the Word of God of a life without difficulties. Now, I know what some preachers say. But there is no such promise in God's Word. But there is a promise of inward comfort and peace in the midst of difficulties. That is the promise that we do have. And so here, they're in the midst of crisis, and they're here because they're led of God. And so they go from crisis to crisis. God has been gracious to them. He, he, he has showed Himself very gracious in His dealing with them. And they are here in this place, and this is not an accident. They, they are, understand, they are exactly in the place where God has led them. And by the way, let's just think about the testimony so far. Has God not met them so far everywhere He's led them and provided for them? Yes, He has. That that is God who has showed Himself faithful every time that there was a difficulty. God opened the door and showed Himself faithful during that time. So what happens to the place where God lives? And well, verse 1 tells us at the end of verse 1, there was no water for the people to drink. So we might think, the, the logical mind might think at this point, uh, to say, well, uh, if God was truly good to the people of Israel, would, not, would He not lead them to a place where there is water? Now that's the logical mind. Right? The, uh, maybe we could say that even the humanist mind, the one that says, well, if there is a God who loves His people, and if there is a God who is going to provide for His people as He's promised, then surely God would lead them to a place where they could evidently see that God, the reason why God brought them to this place. And what I mean by that is, God ought to bring us to a place of comfort. If God is going to lead us anywhere, it ought to be in a place of comfort. And, and that's the, the, what the, the mind of man thinks. Uh, God has brought great deliverance from Egyptian bondage. And so therefore, what God is going to provide for us now that we are no longer slaves to the Egyptians, God is going to bring us all the comforts that we need. And what we're going to learn in the book of Exodus, the book of Numbers, Deuteronomy, before we reach, get to the book of Joshua, uh, God is very uh, careful to remind them that before they go and experience all the comforts in the promised land, and the blessing, and the houses, and the the harvest, that they'd be careful not to say when they get there, mine hand and my power hath gotten me this riches. God is doing a work in them so that they're not self-reliant, self-dependent, so that when they get to the promised land, they don't say, look at what I've done. The only thing they can say at the end of this journey is look at what God has done for us. So that who gets the glory at the end of the wilderness wanderings? God. They didn't have to get a change of shoes. They ate manna every day. Now when there was need for water, God miraculously provided water for them. And so there is a seeming, it's a time of crisis, but it's a time when God is proving the children of Israel and He is going to show Himself once again as a faithful God. Verse 2 says, Wherefore the people did chide with Moses. Now, so far we've looked at the word murmuring. That's what the word that's been used. It is used a little later uh, in verse 3. They murmured against Moses. Now, the word chide is a little different than the word murmur, although there are some similarities. But the word chide might be a little stronger than the word murmur because chiding means basically not just to murmur, complain, to be discontent, but it means to scold at somebody. It means to reprove someone. It means to utter words of anger. That's what it means to chide. It means basically that when you speak to someone, you are at odds and you are in a 
a quarrel with them. And so it often involves, by the way, making a rough, clamorous, roaring noise. That word is used of the raging of the sea, the chiding of the sea, the roaring of the sea. That's what that word is used for. And so they're chiding with Moses. They are scolding Moses. They're reproving Moses. They're, they're angry at Moses. And, and they're so soon to forget how God has provided for them. Now that is the element where it speaks to human nature, does it not? That we are very quick to forget God's blessing in our lives. That's why I think it's good for us. Sunday evenings, every once in a while, to just thank the Lord and, and to be grateful, to, to think to think about our lives and how God has blessed us and how God has been good to us. Uh, that's a wonderful thing. Why? Because in our flesh we are quick to forget. The tendency of the flesh is to focus on everything that we do not have instead of the things that we do have. As I mentioned last week, godliness with contentment is great gain. There's great value in contentment. The things that God has given to us. So we find this uh, relationship between uh, Moses and the people of Israel. And by the way, at this point, I feel like if I was Moses, I would have just left so look, you are on your own. I mean, how many times does this need to happen? Perhaps uh, Moses would anticipate this right before it happened. That's why initially when God called him, he says, I'm not going. I'd rather be here with sheep who don't complain about anything uh, than to uh, lead some millions of people out of, out of Egypt. And so... Uh, no doubt I uh, or you and I would have given up already at this point. But notice what they ask of Moses. Wherefore, the people did chide with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So here's the logical question. Could Moses of his own power give the children of Israel water? Well, the, the answer is no. He, he, there's no power in Moses himself could he make water come from a rock? No. By the way, up to this point, it hasn't been done. I know what the Bible says, and we know what will happen. But to this point, there's no evidence that Moses can make water come out of a rock. And so, but yet the request is, give us water that we may drink, as if Moses possessed some type of supernatural power that he could do that of his own accord. And so they asked Moses the question as if all that they had witnessed thus far has all been done by the power of Moses. And so now that we are here, Moses, do it again. You've done it before, do it again. The problem is, it was not Moses. <laughs> it was never Moses. And by the way, God informed that to Moses when he called him. You remember what he said, Moses? I will. You're just going to be the vessel that I'm going to use, but I'm going to do all those things. You just need... You just need to be there, Moses, and just do what I tell you to do. And so the rod will represent uh, that authority that I've given to you. And so you're going to use that rod, as I tell you. And, and by the way, in all those points, Moses uses the rod uh, of God. But again, this is nothing of Moses. But I, I, this is perplexing to me because like, are, they're missing God. And they're focusing on man. Now look, that is all of our tendencies. We focus on man instead of focusing on God. We are very quickly disturbed by the activities of men. And sometimes it is helpful for us to uh, look once again as to the activities of God and what God has done. So Moses says, uh, verse 2, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord. Um, what, what are they doing here? I, I think what we could say is they're calling into question in this place, they're, they're calling into question the, the goodness and the faithfulness of the Lord. And now it may be a shock because of what we know, right? And, 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 every chapter. And, 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 it goes from one thing. It goes really from one act of God's goodness and faithfulness after another. And here's about to be another one. But again here, they're calling into question the goodness and the faithfulness of God. You know, that is often what we do when we face difficulties. We begin to question the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. Because we might think that 
right, uh, misrepresented God, the today, well, God is love and God would not allow anything bad to happen to you. That's all nonsense. It's all nonsense. No, no, no. God has already shown Himself faithful and good. And we are dependent on what He has done for us that we may trust Him for today. And so they're chiding with Moses. They're tempting the Lord as if God has not been good, as if God has not been faithful. The verse 3 says, The people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? Again, this is another excuse. We've seen so many of them, it's getting old by now. Oh, really? Moses brought you here to kill you? Okay, you, you've said this every single time. How many times are you going to repeat yourself? Uh, so, verse 1, there was no water. Verse 3, the people thirsted because there was no water. So, you see the, the intensity is climbing. The people are becoming more agitated, uh, more ungrateful. Uh, no doubt the anger is building against Moses. Uh, even against uh, the Lord, as if God has not been good, as if God has not been uh, faithful. And now they accuse Moses, as they've, as they've done again and time and time and again, you did this to kill us. So they impugn a wrong motive for Moses. And so Moses, verse 4, does exactly what he ought to do. Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. So I think that the chiding got pretty intense. Now, this is not the first time. We know that this is possible because, remember, early on, when, while they were in Egypt, when Pharaoh made things harder for them, they were about to stone Moses and Aaron then. And so this is not the first time this has happened. Uh, this is a pattern that the people get angry and they're about to, to kill Moses. Remember? God's representative, the ten plagues, Passover, Red Sea, Waters of Mara, manna, that same Moses, they're trying to kill him. And so he speaks to God. I think about that question, what shall I do unto this people? Um, God, you want me to do something to them? Like just strike them dead or something? Maybe uh, the feeling of some of the disciples. Do you want us, Jesus, to send, uh, ask to send lightning from heaven to kill these people? I don't know if that's the question, but what, what do we want me to do here? They're, they're about to stone me. Uh, they're about to kill me. And here is, again, th this is so amazing how gracious God is. Verse 5. Notice verse 5 and 6. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, Take it in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock. Now the, the understanding is that he's going to use the rod. He mentioned the rod in verse 5, that he's going to use the rod to smite the rock. And there shall come water out of it, and the people that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So here this brings us to another old Testament type of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, and I say this based upon the authority of the New Testament. Now, we uh, went to uh, chapter, we talked about the Passover. Uh, the Passover is, is a type of Christ, of, of the Lamb that was slain, and the, the blood on the ropes, and the death angel passes over the house. Why? Because the blood has been applied, and we see that. Uh, we, we talked about the manna, how the manna that came down from heaven it was is God's provision for them, and it was satisfy them every single day while they were in the wilderness wanderings. And in John chapter 6, Jesus, when, he, uh, when they were debating about the manna, about Moses, Jesus said, I am the true manna from heaven. And so there's those types of Christ. And here there's another type of Christ because of what 1 Corinthians 10 tells us. Turn with me there to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, um, the church at Corinth, carnal church, <clears throat> uh, Paul spends a lot of time in the letter reproving them. Uh, he says... Um, 
He says, I praise you not. He calls them carnal. Uh, a lot of things that they were doing wrong in the church of Corinth, and he seeks to correct those things. And here in, in this chapter, uh, notice with me uh, chapter 10, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Well, who are we talking about? Well, the children of Israel. They were under the cloud, the pillar of cloud uh, by day, the pillar of fire by night, and they passed through the sea. That could be no other group of people than those people that we've read about in Exodus. There is no other group that passed through the Red Sea that we know of. Verse 2, And were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat uh, the same spiritual meat. And we're talking about the manna here, that, that spiritual meat. Uh, that's why, remember in Deuteronomy, he said, uh, I did, I give you manna so that you might learn not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So there's something spiritual about it. It was not about just meeting their physical need. And so then he says in verse 4, And did all drink the same spiritual drink? What is he referring to? For they drank of the spiritual rock that flowed, uh, th that followed them, and that rock was who? Well, there it is. Well, we went off to guess what uh, this rock signifies and the instruction that God gives to Moses about the rock and what to do with the rock and how water is going to come from, from the rock. The New Testament tells us that when they drank, it was, there was a spiritual significance about this, and that rock was Christ. So what if we go back to uh, Exodus chapter 17... How is this rock, how can this rock be likened to Jesus Christ? So, so the rock is a, is a picture, not, oh no, the rock itself is not Christ. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. Um, by the way, uh, generally speaking in the Bible, in the whole of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, Jehovah God is referred to as our rock. Uh, Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are judgments. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is He. He is our rock. Deuteronomy 32.15 But Jeshurun waxed fat. That's another name for Israel. And kicked. Thou art waxen fat. Thou art grown thick. Thou art, uh, thou art uh, covered with fatness. Then He forsook God which made Him and lightly esteemed the rock of His salvation. Lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. Even in the book of Psalms, Psalm 95, verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. By the way, you remember when Jesus Christ was um, teaching his disciples, he asked the question, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, Well, some say that I are Elias, Jeremiah is one of the prophets, but, but whom say ye that I am? And Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, uh, Upon this rock, the rock not Peter, Peter means little stone, pebble, the rock of his confession. Gee, there is only one rock in the Bible, and that's not the Pope. It's Jesus Christ. Upon the rock of your confession, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so Jehovah is referred to throughout the Word of God as the rock, our rock, the rock of our salvation. Now, if we think just preliminarily, uh, what is a rock? What does a rock communicate? Well, I think we could go back to the Sermon on the Mount. And you remember what Jesus said? He talked about the wise man uh, and the foolish man. He says, the wise man uh, hears those sayings of mine and he does them. The foolish man uh, hears those things, but, but he doesn't do them. And he, he, likes, he likens the foolish man who built his house on a sand. And when the winds came and uh, the rains came and the winds blew, then that house fell. But the wise man is the one who hears the word of God and does it. He is like a man who builds his house on a rock. And when the rain comes and the wind blows, the house remains. Why? Because it was founded on the rock. So here he's given an illustration. So, but what do we know about a rock? Well, in the rock there, there, we find both strength and stability. That's what a rock is. It, it's strength and stability. In other words, if you build a house, 
the analogy of Christ is you have to build it on a rock. Why? Because the, the, the house can only be stable and sure and strengthened if it's on the rock. So the rock speaks of strength and stability, but also it speaks of when the rain comes and the wind blows, the rock speaks of durability in adversity. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. So when the rains came, the winds blew, uh, the house remained because it was founded on the rock. So the house itself is not the significant part of that. Both men built the houses, but one founded his house on the rock. Strength, stability, and durability in adversity. And by the way, that's who Jesus Christ is. That's a good uh, illustration of who Jesus is. Jesus is strength and stability for our lives. That's why we sang all those songs. Uh, we, we just sang uh, um, the song, In times like these, you need a Savior. In times like these, you need an anchor. Be very sure, be very sure. Your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. This rock is Jesus. Yes, He's the one. This rock is Jesus, the only one. I'm very sure. I'm very sure my anchor holds and grips the solid rock. We uh, sang, uh, On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You see, Jesus is our rock. Now, I'm interested in the details then if we read in the New Testament that specifically what Paul writes in reference back to this event, he says that rock was Christ, representative of Christ, that that's what the rock was. Then we go back to Exodus, and so if the rock communicates Christ... You remember the question of the children of Israel at the end of chapter, uh, of verse 7 of chapter 17? Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Well, God speaks to Moses and He says, here's what I want you to do. And we find some details that show us how this rock pictures Christ. Notice with me, Moses, go, verse 5, Go on before the people, and take with thee the elders of Israel and thy rod, Wherewith thou smotest the river, and take in thine hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. All right, so here's what we, uh, we learned, that uh, this rock is a picture of Christ, but Moses, first of all, Moses was to smite the rock... With a rod. That's what he was to do. Thou shalt smite the rock. And we, we think, okay, well, wait, Paul, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, he says that the, that, that rock was Christ. Why, was, why would Moses smite the rock if the, the rock is Christ? Well, why would he do that? Why would Christ need to be smitten if that's what a picture of? Well, I'm glad you asked the question. Here's the answer. If the rock is a picture of Christ, well, first of all, the rock throughout the book of Exodus has been a symbol throughout this book of the judgment of God. Now, you remember uh, that the first time that the rod was employed, uh, uh, you remember what God said at the burning bushes, what is, it in I, what is in thy hand? And He said, a rod. And He says, cast it forth. What did the rod become? It became a serpent. What does the serpent represent? It represents, if you go back all the way, to the curse of man, that the serpent was cursed. He would crawl on the ground. Why? Because, of, because he rebelled against God. And so uh, the, the, the serpent is representative of, of, uh, uh, of sin. And God and the rod itself, as, uh, God, uh, as Moses used the rod to send the ten plagues in Egypt, it was God's judgment upon the Egyptians. It, it was God's declaration of His judgment. Why? Because they would not let the people go. And so the rod has been a symbol of uh, the judgment of God all throughout the book of Exodus. But then we find that 
the, the, the smiting of the rock here that we find uh, was to be witnessed by the elders. And God is specific about this to Moses. He says, when you do this, I want you to gather the elders and I want you to do it before them. He also says to Moses, and I want you to know that I'm going to stand upon the rock. So smite the rock with the rod. Do it in front of the elders. I will stand upon the rock. And there's another question. What is it that brought on the smiting of the rock. Well, it was the sin of the people. Why does Moses have to smite the rock? Well, why did God tell Moses to smite the rock so that water's come out? Why is water coming out? Because the people have been complaining about water. And so what brought on the smiting of the rock was the people's sin. Well, what proceeded from the rock? Well, water. Water that satisfied the congregation of the children of Israel. So here's the picture for us. If what Paul says, if that rock is Christ, then the picture for us as we think about uh, uh, Moses holding the rod of God and, and smiting the rock with the rod in front of the elders with God standing uh, on top of the rock uh, before the people and knowing that the smiting happens because of the sins of the people and that what we'll perceive from that would, what be, would satisfy the people, we have a picture of what Christ came to do. That when Jesus Christ came, and by the way, it follows chapter 16. What happens in chapter 16? Manna comes from heaven. This manna would not be earthly. It would come directly from heaven. And so there we have the incarnation. A picture of the incarnation that Jesus Christ came into this world. He was without sin. But He was, make li- he was made like unto a man. He was made after a woman. But he was without sin. But he did come from heaven. And so we have a picture of the incarnation in chapter 16. But then we have a picture of the crucifixion in chapter 17. Why? Because Jesus Christ, when he came, what was his purpose in coming from heaven? What what did he keep emphasizing to his disciples? I must needs go to Jerusalem. I must be betrayed in the hands of sinners. I must be crucified. And after three days, I will rise from the dead. That's why he came to do. And when we follow the life of Jesus Christ, Christ who was looking to that moment of crucifixion, uh, the crucifixion was about what? It was about the judgment of God being poured down upon the Son. Isn't that what Isaiah chapter 53 verse 4 says? Surely He hath borne our grief and carried our sorrow, yet we did esteem Him stricken, uh, 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 esteem stricken of God and afflicted. You see, when Jesus Christ, who is our rock, when He died on the cross, understand that the smiting, the rod smiting the rock is a picture that the wrath of God was poured on Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, as He died on the cross, is, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? You see, uh, what, uh, what happened on the cross, that it was our sins uh, that Jesus Christ died for. Your sins, my sins, was on Jesus Christ on that day. And God cannot look on sin. He is a holy God. And God turned away from sin. And He judged Jesus Christ for our sins. And God smote His Son. He struck His Son. And with His stripes, we are healed. You see, just as God says, I'm going to stand upon the rock, Jehovah God was looking down. And you know what happened when sin was judged? God was satisfied. Because the rock was stricken. We also know when we think about the cross, we say, okay, well, what is the cross about? Okay, well, Jesus died. He was a martyr. And the judgment of God, well, we have to ask ourselves, uh, what uh, what, what prompted the crucifixion? What, What prompted the cross? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? And I'm glad you asked the question. That's the most important question we we must ask ourselves. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because it was our sins that sent Him to the cross. Your sins and my sins. That's why Jesus died on the cross. And so the 
wrath of God was poured on the Son because of me. Just as the rock in Exodus 17 was smitten because of the people's sin and murmuring. But then what proceeds from the rock was water. And the water would satisfy the people. It's interesting in this chapter we we read, And Moses did so in the sight of the elders, verse 6, of Israel. And he called the name of the place Mesa and Meribah because the, of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Uh, nowhere do we find this record that they drank. Just that water came forth out of the rock. We don't have the record of, Oh, the children of Israel, they ran to the water and they all drank. We saw that, the waters of Mara. But we don't find this here. The water's pouring out. The Bible doesn't tell us whether they drank or not. We imagine, yes, they did drink. Uh, but the miracle there is, is that when we think about Jesus Christ in this crucifixion, Jesus uh, referred to himself when he came to the manna as that he was the bread of life, but he referred to himself also as he is the living water. Turn with me to John chapter 7. In John chapter 7. In John chapter 6, you find uh, the debate over uh, the manna, what was the manna about, and, and uh, Jesus says that I am the true manna from heaven. That's John chapter 6. We come to John chapter 7, and, and now he... He talks about the water. He talked about the bread in chapter 6. John chapter 7 talks about the water. Notice with me John 7. Uh, go down to verse 37. Verse 36 says, But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that my Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Okay, that's chapter 6, sorry. I said chapter 7, I was reading from chapter 6. That was some good verses too. Let's go to chapter 7, to the actual reference that I mentioned. Chapter 7, notice uh, verse 37. Long chapters there in John. It says, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood in Christ, saying, If a man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Uh, you remember when he talked to the woman at the well in John chapter 4? He asked the woman to give him water to drink. And um, notice with me verse 10, John 4, 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob? If she only knew. Which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So in Exodus chapter 17, the question is, is the Lord among us or not? Yeah, the Lord is among you. And God is so gracious and patient and kind that in the midst of your rebellion... He's going to smite the rock. By the way, in front of the elders, in the presence of God, to provide for you an undeserving people. Unless we forget, Jesus has done the same thing for us. We who are undeserving, God has judged our sin in the person of Christ in front of the world. And the rock was Christ was, was smitten so that we might receive everlasting life. But the water that He provides for us is much greater than the physical temporal water that the children of Israel got in Exodus chapter 17. See, the water that He gives us is a well inside of us springing up an everlasting life, never running out. You know what that means? 
that Jesus Christ is our permanent satisfaction. He is our permanent satisfaction. What are the children of Israel needing to learn? That their satisfaction needs to be in the Lord. You've got to get your eyes off of everything else. Get your eyes off the Egyptians. Get your eyes off of the, the bitterness of the waters. Get your eyes off of the fact that there's no food and you're desperate. Get your eyes off the fact that there's no water and turn your eyes on every single point. What did they have to do? Turn your eyes to the Lord. He is your satisfaction. He will give you all you need. This is what we learn here in the book of, of Exodus. Christ is all we need. But because we know human nature and we've read through the book of Exodus, our tendency is to think that He is not all we need. I need something more. I need comforts and I need those things. And if God wants me to praise Him, then He needs to do things for me. And all along we can miss that God has something much deeper for us than present temporary comfort in our circumstances. He who indwells us has the ability to give us peace and comfort in the midst of difficulties. That's the God that we have. And in Him we can be satisfied. We must be very careful not to attach our fulfillment to the absence of trouble in our lives. We must seek for the Lord to satisfy us from within. You see, ultimately God will take care of the peripheral things. We just need to learn to be satisfied with the Lord. You see, because we live in a sin-cursed world, circumstances for the rest, as long as the world is in existence, there will be difficulties, trials, tribulation, there's, there's going to be death, there's going to be disease, all those things are going to happen. Why? Because we are in a sin-cursed world. It's going to happen. That's not going to change. And what we have to do is we have to, try to, we have to stop trying to change everything else that's going on in the world and see what God came to do. And that is to what? Give us inward peace and comfort in the midst of the world. You see, that's what separates the believer from the world. That's why he says in 1 Thessalonians that we sorrow, but not as others which have no hope. We go through the same difficulties that unregenerate people don't go through, but we have something different. What is that? Christ in us, the hope of glory.